I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, my once upon a genies. Thank you for being here. I'm your host, Effie Parks, mom to my CTNNB1 buddy Ford, and I'm happy to be here to help share the stories, the important stories of those on this crusade. We all have different paths. Please know that yours is important, and do not be intimidated. If you can figure out what you're good at and do something, it all matters and it all counts. If you need some ideas, please shoot me a message. I'm full of them. Y'all know I love a rad dad and I have another great one for you today. He's a surgeon in Orange County, California, and he has a gorgeous family. One of his sons has a devastating disease called KCNT1-related epilepsy. It's a rare infant onset seizure disorder. He serves as president and co-founder of the organization, and he's the director of clinical medicine for the foundation. He uses his gifts as a physician to advocate, and he has a unique position to speak the language. So he's so down to earth, and he's doing incredible work to help get a treatment to these kids, which, as you know, helps us all in this community one way or another. I'm only sorry I didn't get to record all of the questions I had for him about the show Nip Tuck. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Justin West. Hi, Justin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yep, I'm really looking forward to it. I had the honor of actually meeting you in person for a moment at the table when we were at the Syngap Research Conference together. So that was very cool to have your face to your episode beforehand, which doesn't usually happen in that order. That's right. Yeah, no, it was, uh, let's not throw out the word honor. I mean, you know, I would say the honor was probably it's the opposite, right? It was an honor for me. I mean, you've been a leader in this community, and I think you've done an amazing job sharing, you know, your stories and other patients' stories, which is a massive benefit for all of us in this community. And and then the part you're leaving out is that it, after that, we also went out to some sort of honky tonk thing where there's a lot of dancing going on. So it wasn't just dinner at at Syngap. There, a lot of us ended up getting dragged out by people like you who are highly motivated <laughs> leaders, both socially and in the rare disease world. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yes, there was line dancing. Yes, there was. And Mike was shockingly good at it too. Oh, he's good at everything. Let's be. <laughs> don't don't act shocked. And. <laughs> His baseline rhythm isn't excellent, but he's good at following direction and he learns quickly. So that's true. He's a very good listener. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So funny. Well, thank you for saying that, Justin. That really means a lot to me. And that's my goal is to help lift all of our all of our patient groups. So thank you so much. First of all, your family is absolutely stunning. I love your family photo, those beautiful kids of yours and your wife. I'd like to learn about them and Andrew specifically. Yeah. You know, my wife and I met in medical school many years ago in Philadelphia. We were next door neighbors. And so we met the first day and started becoming friends. 
And over time, that turned into uh, a relationship, and uh, we ended up getting engaged the day before the uh, the match. So uh, she knew she was going to Georgetown for ophthalmology, and I was going to open up my letter the next day and find out where I was going to spend the next six years. And fortunately, it worked out that we ended up in the same place at Georgetown. You know, we put off having kids. We were working really hard back then. I was working 120-hour weeks, sometimes 140-hour weeks, and she was putting in a lot of really bad hours. And so like a lot of people in our position, we delayed having kids. You know, we wanted to be present for them and we wanted to have financial resources to be able to take care of them. So, you know, we started late. By the time we had our first child, Carolyn, I was right around 40 and we had struggled to have kids. It didn't come easily. We'd gone, you know, we went through IVF and some other approaches to try to have our first child. And so we started late, which of course presents risks for moms and babies and creates some challenges. But Carolyn came and she was, you know, really a healthy kid and precocious. She's a total gem, totally adore her. And then uh, our second son, Colin, came a couple of years later. And Colin's a precocious little kid and super smart, bright, very funny little personality. And, and then Andrew came along about two years after that. So they're now nine, seven, and five. When Andrew was born, you know, everything was totally normal. We had a normal pregnancy and, you know, Andrew was delivered and he was this beautiful, shiny baby and had a really loud cry and he was pink and, and perfect. And the first few months were, you know, totally normal. He was hitting little mini milestones that babies are expected to hit. And, you know, we struggled to figure out how we're going to manage, you know, three kids under the age of five. But, you know, it was fun. And, and looking back at the time, I guess it was actually really easy compared to what it's become. You know, and then Andrew's kind of journey into epilepsy began. So I was at work. Lisa had not returned to work yet at this point. He was about three and a half months old. And Lisa sent me a, um, a text with a video attachment saying, what do you think this is? And I looked at it and I couldn't really see anything. Um, and I said, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't think it's anything. He's a baby and maybe he's moving a little spasmodically. I mean, it was a really subtle little foot flicker. But she posted it online in a, in a Facebook group for women physicians in Orange County, where we're from. And within an hour, an epileptologist got on and said, you know, that's a seizure. You need to take him to Children's Hospital of Orange County. So we went and uh, this journey kind of began. So I've been talking a lot. If you want to ask questions, go for it. Otherwise, I can just keep talking for the next two weeks straight, probably. <laughs> no, I'm never going to stop you when you're talking. Uh, it's it's really thorough and it follows the timeline of such an important event. And also just how lucky you were to be in that Facebook group because it makes me go, wow, I wonder how much longer it would have taken for you to find out that Andrew was beginning to have these seizures if she wasn't a part of that Facebook group. I mean, I think you have to call the doctor, you have to go to the pediatrician, then you have to go to the specialist, then you, you know, like that stuff kind of, it makes me ill to think about the timeline that could have happened even then for Andrew. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, it, so her response to that was, you know, it drove us to to take him into the emergency room. And of course, when we got there, he wasn't having any seizures. And even if he had, it was so subtle. I'm not sure anybody really would have. It was almost imperceptible. And it was happening. You know, I think we just saw the one at the time. So they did a full seizure workup, which as two surgeons was kind of hard to watch. You know, ER doctors manipulate your child in a way that's maybe different from a procedural point of view as to how, how surgeons do things in the operating room. But, you know, uh, not having going from total control when you're in the, in the OR as a surgeon, you run that that room and to go from being a parent who has no influence and doesn't know anything about what's being done. It's it was a it's a really awful feeling. 
But, you know, they did this workup and said, well, we'll get some labs. And everything at the time seemed very normal. They said, you'll, we'll dial you in to see an epileptologist as an outpatient. And we were sent home, which at the time seemed totally fine. I mean, it was just this tiny little thing. And we, I, I wouldn't say we were minimizing it, but it, it didn't seem, it seemed very manageable in the moment. So between, I think, that ER discharge and our neurology visit, the foot flicker started to happen a little bit more often. And it got to the point where even I could recognize that it was going on. It wasn't, you know, it became a less and less subtle. You know, this time you have to bear in mind was a, in retrospect, I mean, it, it all kind of blends together because it was a really horrific time of our lives. But the big picture evolution was that it went from these very subtle foot flicks to more distinct movements of his leg. And it went from happening once or twice a day to, you know, six times and then a dozen times. And at some point it was happening 50 times a day. So Andrew eventually, you know, he got admitted to Children's Orange County and started on one anti-epileptic drug and then another and then another. And, you know, unfortunately, our kids, you know, he kids with our disease are resistant to pretty much every medication out there. It's one of the hallmarks is this, you know, they're resistant to, to, to drugs. But I would say his first year, he ended up spending probably 100 days of his first year of life in different hospitals throughout Southern California. So, you know, first it was chalk and then UCLA and then CHLA. And, and I think largely because we were two desperate parents who thought, well, it, it couldn't possibly be the disease. It's the team that's failing him. And so we would look for alternative answers at different hospitals. But what we found is that everybody had essentially the same experience. We still didn't really have a working diagnosis for what was causing it. He had had an MRI and the way they read that was that there might be a, it looked like there was a suggestion of a small area of his brain that might be leading to these seizures. So we were told, well, if that's the case, he'll eventually have a surgery one day, maybe when he's closer to two and they'll take out this little area, but that'll fix the problem. And maybe he'll have a tiny limp, but he'll be a, a totally normal child. So I started focusing on finding the best pediatric neurosurgeon in the country, made a bunch of phone calls to friends and colleagues in, the, in that world. And we got some names and started having remote phone consults and we had a plan, but the seizures kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually our, somebody on our, our local team at Children's Hospital said, you know, this might be, there might be a genetic cause here. And there was some infighting about whether that made any sense, but Ultimately, they ordered a panel test, and I don't know what it was. A couple of weeks later, we get the result. I just finished a surgery. It was, I don't know, six or six o'clock at night, and I was in the recovery room writing a note about what I had just done, and I got a call from um, our main epileptologist at CHLA, actually, and he said, uh, you know, we got the genetic testing report back. I said, okay, and he said, um, well, this is, the, this is what your kid has. He's got a mutation in the KCNT1 gene. And I said, okay, well, what do we, what's that mean to us? And he said, well, it's good news. And I said, well, okay, why is it good news? And what's it going to change? He said, oh, it's not going to change anything. We don't have a treatment for it. But at least we know what we're dealing with. And this epileptologist, I absolutely adore. When we found out for the first time we were going to see him, I had reached out to my, uh, my mother's cousin who at one point had been the head of adult neurology and uh, epilepsy at, at one of the Harvard hospitals. And he uh, found out we were seeing this gentleman and said, I would sell my house to have this person take care of my kids. So we felt really comfortable with him. And he is a gem of a human. But the the context of that comment didn't really resonate that well, because to me, if you've got an untreatable disease, it, it, you know, it's hard to kind of, for me, qualify it as good news. Um, and I asked, I said, well, you know, is there any research? Is there anything going on? And he threw out the word patch clamp testing, and that meant nothing to me at the time, and, and still doesn't mean a ton to me. But he threw out, that was about the only term he threw out, but he said, there's no, on, there's no treatment that's underway anytime soon for this disease, and maybe, but maybe in five or 10 years, we'll have something. And then I went home and talked to my wife about it, and we started Googling this 
you know, this mutation. And the first sentence of every article ever written about it refers to this devastating or catastrophic diagnosis. And then you learn that your kid is never going to walk and is never going to talk and has a 20% chance of dying by age five. And they're not going to respond to any seizure medications. And your kid will basically be a four month old for the rest of his or her life. And, and that was probably the most painful 24 hours of our lives, I would say, because you've got this horrible disease. You essentially realize you've lost your child and nothing's going on that's going to make it better. And so we went into a pretty dark space for the next year. Yeah. Ugh, it makes me emotional. That diagnosis day, especially when it's maybe delivered not super well at the time and not necessarily for lack of anything good in a human, but, you know, they accomplished their job. But what it what it does to a family is so different. I would never say that any disease is more profound than the other, but there is an urgency in diseases like KCNT1 that are undeniable truths and having catastrophic forms of epilepsy and so on. I know there wasn't a patient organization started yet, but you actually did have several patients at the time. So what was it that happened? And was it within that first year when you were sort of grappling with the potential future and lifespan of Andrew? Was it that you decided to start this advocacy group? Well, I actually didn't start the group that I'm part of. So the first year was really living in this dark space and climbing all over clinicaltrials.gov and just seeing if there's anything out there. And the summary was that there was nothing that we could find. We did reach out to programs like Boston Children and some other places, and we started sending blood samples to people who had written papers about KCNT1 and where there seemed to be some research. But we didn't at the time start a foundation. And then a year into his diagnosis, when we were just kind of coming out of the fog, my brother was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so I was now dealing with, with two different diseases that have really catastrophic outcomes. And so I got a little diverted with that. But the, the, the foundation was started by uh, one of the other fathers in our group who's out on the East Coast. He started uh, the foundation and had had an initial meeting with families and some of the researchers. And it had come across our radar. My wife flew out to go attend the meeting and meet some of the key people. And at the time, by that point, we were a year in and we had started having conversations in our family about starting a foundation. Then we were trying to figure out, should we do it? You know, should it be a, su a family support organization? Should it be about drug discovery? Should it be about research? And for us, I think that the conclusion was it should really be translational. You know, we wanted to, we're, you know, we wanted a drug and we wanted to push it as fast as possible. So rather than having two competing foundations, which I think that we sometimes see in our world, I started having conversations with uh, Seth Greenblatt, who had started the, um, the foundation, said, you know, we're thinking about doing, we've been thinking about doing this. Would it make more sense to partner and work together as opposed to have two different organizations? And ultimately, that's the decision that we came to was to work together. And then over the period of a couple of years, you know, we took that early phase foundation and, and kind of brought some uh, more constructive elements to it. You know, we, we started our science advisory board and we started having formal communications with everybody who is researching KCNT1. We established relationships with all the clinicians who are treating KCNT1 patients and we started patient registry and we, we started a, a number of initiatives, but I, I don't, I won't take credit for starting it. it. I came in and sort of helped build what was there uh, in conjunction with this other family because uh, it seemed like the most productive way to get um treatments to Andrew and other kids in our community. You know, actually, right after you started talking, I do remember that there was someone who had started it and you came in 
and just helped it flourish, right? So that was just another great mind coming on board and another motivated parent who just helped push things further. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, you know, it, it felt like a, a good way of doing things. I mean, you know how it is. It's a lo- rare disease. It's a lonely road. And most of us are, you know, don't aren't sitting around doing nothing, waiting for a diagnosis like this to happen and then making a job out of it. Most of us are, you know, we're taking care of other kids and we're, you know, we're working for a living and caring for our families. And so it's hard to have the bandwidth to take on a project of this nature uh, solo. And so partnering, you know, number one, emotionally, it was nice to have another father or parent of any kind who is going through the same thing. It felt less lonely to be able to share those experiences together and then to advocate together, you know, to be able to feed off of each other, I think was important. And then ultimately we brought in a third parent to the, to the group to round things out and add some more brain power. Uh, and then we were lucky enough to have uh, Sarah Drizzling, my aunt, get involved and become a powerhouse executive director. So, you know, we've built a really I think, effective team over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, you've moved pretty quickly for sure. Speaking of kind of like the isolation, especially in the dad world, I would wonder if you would speak on that a little deeper and or I'm curious as like a clinician, was it hard? I know for me as a parent, it's hard for me to relate to other parents now unless I like really try totally. But I wonder as a clinician, did that also kind of get a little disconnected? Like, do you feel as a physician or a surgeon and now as a rare disease dad that it's harder to connect to your colleagues in a way? Or have you found that they've really jumped on board to kind of show up? There are so many issues in what you just brought up there. Uh, We could talk about all this for an hour. So I guess like with regards to being a physician, you know, I'm a surgeon and surgeons tend to be problem solvers, right? Somebody comes in bleeding, you stop the bleeding. Somebody has cancer, you remove the cancer. You know, we like to find really, you know, definitive, quick solutions. We tend to move fast and, you know, we're not treating diseases over a 40 year time period. You know, we we remove things, you know, we, we do things. It, in some ways, it's a fairly simple problem solving type of job. I think that in terms of how Andrew's disease has impacted me, I would say, you know, for years, I took care of mostly breast cancer patients. And I would go through that emotional journey, you know, with three new patients, let's say a day and kind of take on that responsibility emotionally of managing that beyond just the technical side of taking care of a cancer patient. And it's a big responsibility. You know, you live this diagnosis over and over and over again and try to shepherd them through that as well as you can. I think that once Andrew is diagnosed, I kind of quickly realized that I could not be that kind of doctor at work and also at home because you essentially get no break from being a doctor. And it was hard to give all that energy to patients that I didn't really have a connection to and then come home and take what was left and put it into my kid, which is, you know, who has this really substantial problem. And then, you know, the other, I mean, there's there's all kinds of weird aspects to this. I mean, I guess to some degree, and then my wife and I both face this when you're I think having as sick of a child as Andrew, it, it changes the way you think about other problems that may not be quite as severe. So, you know, when somebody gets an outcome after an eye surgery and they're expecting to be 2010 and instead they're 2020, sometimes, you know, before Andrew, it was kind of easy to listen to those and say, hey, well, you know, I'm sorry this happened and maybe we could do something to improve it. When you have a son or a child that's very sick, sometimes you tend to minimize. I've found myself sometimes minimizing things that I used to take maybe more seriously or let it let it really bother them. And so I think that I have maybe become a little bit less not patient, I suppose is probably the wrong word, but I think it's sometimes harder to acknowledge 
in a way that patients need the seriousness of what of a, of a problem they see, you know, when I see how much worse and challenging life can get, if that makes any sense. Uh, but pers- your perspective changes, right? Your ability to process small concerns is sometimes challenged when you have sick kids like ours, which is not fair to patients. And so I had to go through some career changes to move away from some of the things I was doing and save some of my energy, or I guess, preserve more energy for my kids battle, if you will. True compassion fatigue, right? And nothing that one can be blamed for and couldn't be any sort of like character flaw whatsoever, especially since you then decided this isn't good for me, my patient or my family, and then went in a different direction. I think that says a lot about you, actually. And I can only imagine the enormity of both of those worlds colliding. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, in my world, I mean, these days what I do mostly is is the cosmetic side of plastic surgery. You know, I'm a plastic surgeon and I've I've sort of walked away from the reconstruction and I think it is sometimes it's a strange lifestyle to have to go back and forth between a job that has a lot of levity sometimes to it where you're making people feel better and more self-confident, but then I walk out of an exam room and get on a phone call with somebody who's giving us some guidance about how to approach the FDA and all of a sudden we're talking about the mortality rate of this kid, you know, disease my kid has. And so the disparity in the types of hats I'm wearing now is, is it's unlike anything I've ever, you know, it's a weird thing to shift back and forth between these two very different lifestyles or jobs, I suppose, if you will. One's pretty serious. I mean, you have to take them both seriously. That's not to say I would minimize anything I do professionally, but it's a different, it has a very different feel to it. Yeah. I mean, you're like this highly respected, shiny kind of like, royalty inside and then outside you're like a peasant begging for help from anyone and anything yeah but at the same time i will say like you know when surgeons become surgeons and in some part because we don't really we tend to be aggressive personalities who are aggressive problem solvers (laughs) and so i would say the way i've always approached industry and research is probably a more aggressive style than others maybe use because i have a whether it's because i have an md behind my name or i have a surgeon's personality but i would say i do I, I tend to be very, I guess, gracious about it, I do it, but I, I take a fairly aggressive approach to how I how I interact with the people in our in our community in terms of getting stuff done for our kids. So, you know, you, you learn to beg when you need to, you learn to push when you need to, you learn to intimidate or or you know or, or, or try to influence people aggressively when you need to so that they can problem solve for your child in a in a time frame that's meaningful to the kids who are here today as opposed to some corporate time frame where hey if we solve this in seven years that's 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 enough and and the truth is you know for us it's not you, you learn to approach each of these i guess entities differently so that you can get the most out of them in the most efficient way possible yeah i think that's a super valuable skill set. And I love that. Speaking of meaningful endpoints, what would be one for Andrew and your family? The, the thing I focus on every day, I mean, I have, I have a, Andrew's gonna be six, six years old next month. And I can't explain the pain of having a son whose voice I've never heard and whose first steps I've never seen. I think that I have a hard time saying that I wouldn't consider it a failure if I don't see him walk or talk or both before I go. It's a really high bar and maybe it's unrealistic, but you know, I, I believe in the philosophy of set the bar as high as you can. And if you get halfway there, you've done better than if you set the bar really low and hit that bar. But that's what I want. You know, his seizures aren't as bad as they used to be. So seizure control, 
it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot to my family at this point. You know, he sleeps through the night, which it would be a, which would have felt like a big victory two years ago. I'd like to see him go back to picking up his bottle and feeding himself. I would love to hear him say dad or mom or both. And I would love to see him be able to use his feet and arms and legs, something like my other two children. So that's what drives me every day. I need to see that. You know, I, I need it for me, I need it for him, I need it for my wife, and I need it for my other two children who are seeing this brother who every year he gets older and can't do the things that, you know, they do every single day. When he was a baby, when he was one year old and wasn't hitting, you know, his, it, he, he wasn't hitting all the appropriate milestones, they didn't understand it because a milestone for a one-year-old is not that dramatic. But as a six-year-old, when he, they have to explain to their friends who come over that he can't do these things and know he's, kids start asking interesting questions and they're not always delicate now they ask. I need it for them. So I need it for them too. I want them to see their brother get better. And I need to be able to look at my children's eyes and say, I did everything I could while I was alive to help your little brother. You know, we, we, we tried everything possible to give him a better life. Thanks for sharing that, Justin. Back to kind of your aggressive and amazing skill set that you have as a clinician and being able to get things done. There's actually some really profound things that you've got done in a short amount of time that your team has done. So I'd wonder if you'd speak on, A, how you've connected and partnered with the pharmaceutical companies and created these collaborations with them, with Invitae, and also... What was that like finding the association between Fragile X and maybe grabbing onto those coattails to help your community? So the first, I think, interaction that we had with pharma was with Biogen. So the meeting that Seth set up, I want to say it was 2019 in Baltimore, Biogen, I believe, showed up. I wasn't there, but they showed up. And shortly thereafter, we ended up in a meeting in D.C., Immediately before that, I had reached out to Sharon Terry at Genetic Alliance, who's a pretty big figure, I think, in the rare world and has done some amazing things on behalf of her children and for thousands of other families out there. Uh, but I'd reached out to her and I said, you know, Sharon, I'm interested in meeting with you. I reached out to her through, I think, LinkedIn and said, I'd like to learn more about what you do. She got back to me 24 hours later and said, you know, I don't check LinkedIn very often, but I just happened to get approached by a pharma company who's looking for a rare disease to to tackle. And next, a few weeks later, we sat down at the table with Genetic Alliance and Luna DNA, Biogen, and uh, Steph and I representing the foundation. And uh, they expressed their interest in taking on KCNT1 with an ASO. It was a really interesting meeting. I think that, you know, what we learned there is that data is really important. They talked about doing a natural history study, which was not a term I was super familiar with at the time. And they proposed this, you know, this idea uh, for what the architecture of that natural history would look like. And the premise was as many patients as possible. They were looking at trying to recruit, I think at the time, 40 patients were going to go to a single institution located in the upper northeast in a fairly remote area at a university with one of our big KCNT1 clinicians who we all adore. But they wanted all the patients to fly there. It was going to be, I think, two or three times in the first year. And so that was the first time we realized how much power we had. So I said, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. Our kids are fragile. They come with a lot of equipment. My son at that point had never been on a plane. And we know just putting him in the car to go to our local hospital often increases his seizure count you know, dramatically. He's very situationally um, aware and he gets stressed out easily. And the idea that we're going to take a minimum of two flights to go there and be seen in person, you know, seems silly. And let's be honest, when we go see our neurologist with a one-year-old child, there's not a massive exam that happens. I mean, really, it's more of a conversation and conversations you don't really need to be present in person for. 
So they uh, took that information back and they retooled the design for, I think, what was their first fully remote natural history study. So we ended up, we started that, I think, two years ago, but we had uh, remote visits. Nurses came in, EEG techs showed up, phlebotomists showed up, and we did everything either via Zoom or at-home studies. So we had 40 patients recruit. We recruited, we were the fastest group to ever recruit for one of their natural history studies. And I think largely because of this remote design makes it so much more tenable to families with really sick, fragile kids. And I think they're now using that as the model for more natural history studies. So that was kind of cool to influence that. And, and it was really great that they were, to their credit, they were really receptive to it. I think they were surprised, which I found kind of surprising on my end, that they're going after this disease and putting money into it, but they don't really know what it's like to live with our kids. And that's like a universal truth that I think most of us maybe don't talk about or understand is that it doesn't matter how famous our clinicians are. It doesn't matter how big the pharma company is. The end, at the end of the day, none of them under, know the experience of living with a child who has any of our diseases, quite frankly, unless they're one of those rare scientists who went in to solve, you know, the genetic crime that's impacted their own personal child. But, you know, these companies, I think, have good intentions to treat, but they don't really know what it's like. And the truth is our clinicians who are often mostly quite lovely people and spend an hour with us every six months talking to us about our children, they don't know what it's like to raise that child because you can... You know, they can ask some questions. You can tell them, oh, the seizure counts up and the kid's not sleeping, but they don't know what it feels like to be a 30 or 40 something year old working parent taking care of these sick kids day and night, day and night for year after year after year. So I think all of us have this opportunity to really put that in front of them to really communicate that. And I think the the ways we need to communicate that, it's the FDA. They need to really understand what our kids are going through and what we're going through. I think the, the drug companies need to understand that. Our clinicians need to really understand that. Um, and so part of it is the rare disease groups, I think maybe responsibility, or it's, at least it's, it's a benefit to us to really make sure we're educating the people who are caring for us and, and realizing they are not really experts at living with the disease. They can understand it biologically, pharmacologically, but they don't know what it's really like to live with it. So an interesting side note there, we actually found our first company who I, I was talking about this with the CEO of a, um, of a biotech company who's developing a device for home EEG monitoring. And I was lamenting the fact that people don't really understand it. And I said, you know what you should do? I said, I, I invite anyone from your company to come spend 24 hours with me in my house. And he got the brightest look in his eyes. He said, oh, my gosh, I will pay my employees to go to your house and anyone else's house so that we can see what that experience is like. And we'll send them a branded sleeping bag and we'll put them up at your place. <laughs> and, and they, but they do. They, they really expressed an interest in getting to really know what it was what, that, that we're dealing with, if nothing else, to motivate them at you know six o'clock at night when they've got a little bit more work to do to fight a little harder for that kid who they spent 24 hours with. You know, they understand a little bit better. So I've been talking for what feels like 10 days. I'll stop talking now. And, you know, if you want it. No, Justin, you're everything you're saying is so it's so important and it's so profound. And in fact, like, I think people should rewind for the last two minutes and just really remember how how important that stuff is. And I also love that they loved that idea. And it makes me wonder, like, are they just afraid to ask us? Do they think it's inappropriate to ask us? Because the amount of just boring like what you would think data is, but the data that caregivers have, that patients have of what it's actually like, of what the symptoms are, of how it looks to take a bath, to get your kid in and out of a bath, like all of these things that can take hours 
just to get done that you have to do every day to get through the day while, like you said, having a job, having other kids, being a friend, being a partner, like whatever. There's so much that goes into it that you can't ever, ever explain to anyone unless they live it or they really, really see it. Yeah. And I think when you start to think about really important things like what are the endpoints that you want with a new therapy, right? So the obvious one that everybody jumps on with a disease like KCNT1, and I suspect most diseases where epilepsy is one of the defining characteristics is, well, let's reduce the seizure count. And that's great, except all of us, after you've seen over 10,000 seizures, get develop a pretty high level of comfort with it. Like it, it bothers us, but it doesn't phase us the same way as it did when we saw our first 500. And so when we say things like, hey, I'd like to be able to, if our endpoint was sleeping through the night, that would be huge. Or if my endpoint was my child could swallow or, you know, could, could pick up his bottle and drink. And when they hear that, it doesn't resonate. But if you came to my house and saw how many hours a day it takes for us to feed a half a cc at a time through a syringe into my son's mouth because to this point we've still refused to do a g-tube because it was just one of the lines we drew where he said we don't want to do that for him but if they saw how much effort goes into to doing that and how much time it takes all of a sudden that might resonate more as an as a legit endpoint and i suspect with the fda too but you know seizures are medical they can quantify that there's a count for it some of these other things are harder to quantify and it's harder for people to understand, but they can be maybe just as important, if not more so, than some of the really obvious endpoints that we tend to gravitate towards. Um, and that's where I think going back to just selling our story. And then I think that ties into, you know, we make all these efforts, we have all these initiatives to gather data, right? Whether it's through surveys, through our registries or these more informal surveys, parents taking the time to really share on an individual level what stresses them out that that information is really important and yeah it takes time to sit down and answer surveys and inevitably you're going to get survey questions where you think okay like this is so not relevant to my child but we'd like to think that we build surveys where at least half the questions can be relevant but the information that comes out of that is valuable because we can take it and go to the fda and say look it, it's not seizures you know 60 percent of our parents are really mostly focused on getting a better sleep at night because when you're not sleeping, you can't function for your sick child and you can't function for your, you know, your your neurotypical children. And let's be honest, not sleeping, it's one of the most common forms of torture around the world. So it's a it's a pretty big endpoint that I suspect probably isn't taken this seriously at regulatory bodies or by maybe pharma companies because, you know, better sleep just, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a really dramatic thing to influence. But if there was a seizure drug or, or a drug developed for my child or for our community where the only thing it did was improve sleep by 75 percent, that would be huge for us. Uh, yeah, it's like the number one torture tool. Lack of sleep. Like it's real. Yeah. First of all, that makes me shudder thinking back to the day just from for myself in feeding Ford before I got a G-tube. Ugh. But I do want to go back to talking about families filling out surveys. I think most of us know how difficult it is to engage the majority of your patient community, right? And that's for so many reasons. You know, not everyone's necessarily on social media scrolling when they get the call to action. Another one is because, hey, they're not sleeping and they have other kids. Maybe they're a single parent. Maybe they don't have all kinds of resources that others do, or maybe they're just really stressed. But maybe they also just don't know how valuable they are. You know, maybe they don't think they have anything to contribute. And so they kind of just tuck away in the shadows because they feel less than or inadequate. And could you just like maybe give a really great dad doctor pep talk to the people who 
think that way and to let them know how valuable it is when they do contribute, when they do share their story, when they at least share content that you're speaking about to help your community and just filling out those surveys, even if they have to take it in little bits or maybe even need someone on the other end of the phone helping them coach them through it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll draw on a conversation I had just an hour or two before we're having this conversation. So we were on the phone today with somebody about uh, a drug company that wants to go to the FDA, and we're trying to figure out the best way to present it. And we were talking about what is the FDA really interested in? And the first thing she said is, what is the patient and family experience with this ultra rare disease that none of us know anything about? And so we have to communicate that story and everybody's story. There's some themes, like some of us are, there's probably 80% of what we experience is the same from family to family. So I can share my experience and that nails most of it. But then there's parts that are unique to each family and everyone's perspective on these problems is gonna be a little bit different. So I guess what, I, what I'm getting to is, this is one of the few ways that families can truly directly advocate for their patient, their, their child, and for themselves, because you're treating, and I think of these diseases, you're not just treating the, the patient, it's treating everybody around you because it has such a profound impact on the whole family. But this is where we can do it. None of us, most of us aren't going to go open up a lab space and develop a drug. You know, there's certain elements that we just have to put the faith in other people to do. But this is a huge way, if not the, and maybe the only way that most of us will really have a chance to contribute. And that is to fill out surveys. When we, you know, when we ask questions, you know, what is the most important thing to you? Would you participate in a trial if it was a small molecule? Would you participate if it was a gene therapy tool? Answering those questions gives us really key information so that the government bodies like the FDA can say, okay, this is a desperate group of patients. Here are the 10 things that they're overwhelmed by. And 80% of them have been surveyed and said that they would do a trial if one was to become available. You know, in our community, we had an end of one trial and we, we lost a patient. I mean, you couldn't see, imagine a worse outcome. And yet our families are still interested in trials. But in the FDA, if we don't ask them those questions, we don't know the answer. And if we don't present that to the FDA, they don't know. So one version is the FDA might say, if with, in the absence of us talking to them and filling out surveys, they could easily make the conclusion that these families are unlikely to ever participate in a future trial because of what happened in their first one. What we need is data to go back and say, well, our kids are, are severely sick. Even without a, a trial, we lose up to 20% you know, by the age of five. So every month or two, we get another posting on social media where a child has been lost. And so, yes, drug trials are risky, but it's also risky just having this disease. And we're still interested in trials despite, you know, what's happened. So if we don't ask, you know, the foundation's responsibility is to create these surveys with our partners to ask our community. And the community's responsibility is to set aside that five, 10 or 20 minutes answering those questions as best they can so that we have that information to go back and and influence decision making around trials. Drug companies have to be interested and know that if they develop a drug that will try it. The FDA has to know that if a drug is made by a pharma company that the patients will try it. But if they have no evidence that the community is interested and engaged in that process, you know, one or both of those parties shuts down the whole thing and all of a sudden we're stuck with the same thing we've had since 2012 or 13 when this was originally diagnosed, which is essentially no treatment. And the, in the absence of treatment, what all of us have to look forward to is a lifetime of pain and suffering. You know, right now I'm at an age where I can still take, you know, my wife and I can still take pretty good care of our son. But when, to me, the most, I think, scary future is us being in our 70s 
and having, you know, a son who's now a full grown adult who can't do anything for himself, whose voice we've never heard, who can't put his feet down to help us with transfers. And we're going to physically be unable to take care of him. And the idea of putting my son in a facility is unacceptable, you know, which means that who, where does that responsibility fall on? And, or when we pass, is it going to be our kids taking care of this child who can't do anything for himself? So, you know, spending the time now to contribute that data has the potential to save us all a little bit or either to get ourselves a better future, to save our child, you know, our children's lives and to, to get a better life for our other children and for ourselves. So I think it's imperative. It, it is the biggest gift that any of our parents can give their sick child, their healthy children or themselves or our community is to fill out that information when we ask. So well said. Justin, thank you so much. And it reminds me of something Mike Gralia, of course, said once that really shines back with that is if you don't tell your story, someone else will. Kind of like your example about the sweet baby that was lost a few months ago. Anyone else in industry is going to be like, oh, well, let's not touch that anymore. That's what happens. And they're definitely going to be away from that. No, they're not. No, they're not. Those families want to be with their kids and they want to help save their kids and the kids that come after them. So keep telling them what you want and keep fighting and keep telling your story and keep filling out the surveys and doing anything that you can, even if it's small, because it will make a difference because silence is not the answer. Exactly. I know I'm taking up so much of your time, but I did want to kind of circle back to the Fragile X thing, because I know for my community, we're we're dealing with some serious gatekeeping with the CP community because I'm sure they just don't want to lose their beautiful funding that they have. But it's also just such a route that we need to take to get more patients diagnosed. And I know you guys had some sort of connection with the Fragile X community. And I've wondered, how has that been going? And do you see a future with like kind of partnering there and getting more help? It's a really good question. And I'm not sure that we've really figured out the right way to approach it. I think part of the issue is really trying to define, is there truly a connection or not? So we have at least one researcher who's been studying KCNT1 for a very long time, suggesting that there there is this interplay between KCNT1 and Fragile X. And I think that, you know, what, what got us interested about that was just the very nature of trying to understand a disease like KCNT1 being ultra rare. You know, we only have 400 documented cases in the world. The prevalence model shows that there's quite a few, there, there's likely thousands. But, um, you know, how do you adjust, how do you explain why so many different pharma teams are working on KCNT1. And so the thought was, well, maybe it is this connection to Fragile X, which affects more like a million patients around the world. We've had interactions with Fraxa and some of the, the leadership there about, you know, the potential of, of, you know, working together. But I think that, I think if we had really solid, irrefutable scientific data that showed a connection, I think it would be maybe it would help us drive that, I think, a little bit further. I think that the way we've kind of, I guess, taken that information and, and used it to the extent that you use information is that is is kind of explaining the impact statement for donors. So when we ask people to help us to fund our the research and drug discovery efforts that aren't fully funded independently, you know, people say, okay, well, I'm doing this to help, a, you know, 100 kids in the United States, maybe 400 kids worldwide. And that's a really lovely thing to do, even if it's one child. But when we talk to them, we say, well, number one, yes, it's those 400 kids, but we also have three prevalence models, which suggest it's more like 2,500 kids in the U.S. and maybe 35,000 worldwide. And then beyond that, it is possible that in the course of addressing KCNT1 and potentially finding treatments or cures for it, that it might indirectly or directly either benefit 
children with Fragile X or give insights that make it easier to eventually treat Fragile X. So that's kind of the extent to, to which we've sort of, I guess, used that information. And we try to be very cautious about that, you know, because it's not 100% clear. And I'm not sure the entire scientific community says, yes, there's a, there's a clear link here and solving one's going to fix the other. There's some maybe some signals there. But um, I think we use it more with regards to like the impact statement for funding. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But definitely take that glimmer if it's there for sure. Yeah. Because like you said, that impact statement's huge and it does help other people kind of on board in a, with a more like safer sense of, of security. Sure. Absolutely. All right, Justin, is there anything that I didn't ask you today that I should have or anything else that you want to leave our friends listening with? Yeah, I would say, you know, some of the stuff we talked about is really dark, but the the fact is this is probably the single best time to be a patient or a family member associated with KCNT1. You know, when, when Andrew was diagnosed, the overwhelming, awful feeling centered around this concept that Andrew was just born too early for this disease, uh, that there was nothing at the time. You know, now we, we didn't have a single drug that was even close to being used at, the, at that time. Now, fast forward a few years, we've had our first end of one trial. We have around a dozen programs around the world that are actively engaged in developing therapeutics for KCNT1. And so I think that, that that's very exciting. I think as tragic as the outcome was that we saw at Boston Children's, if there was something positive there, and, and it is massively positive, it is that the seizures went away for those children. And one of the parents that I'm close with shared that the child started to wake up and do things that she had never done before, you know, to make eye contact after basically scanning her whole life. And they saw these fairly, you know, unequivocal changes in her. She just wasn't on the drug long enough, I think, to see where that was going to go. But the bottom line is that tells us that this phenotype, this disease is, you can improve it and potentially reverse it. And I think at it and potentially eliminate it. And that is, that's amazing. That is what you know, keeps me going after several years of being fairly exhausted by having, you know, a full-time job and working through the foundation. It's this hopeful message that, you know, after all these years, we've shown both in the lab in animal models and now in patients that this disease can be improved. And I think it can be improved substantially. So the parents who have older children, I think that, you know, there's, there's evidence that even in older kids, you can improve this. For the kids who are just born, I think there's tremendous hope to substantially change the outcome of this disease for those children in particular. And the ones born five years from now, I think are never going to have, you know, a single consequence of the genetic disorder. So it's a really hopeful time. We have more going on now than I ever thought possible. Now we just need to kind of continue to help get the community ready for these trials. And I think we're doing a pretty good job doing that. So I feel really hopeful for our families and for our patients that that we're going to see big improvements in, in the individual lives of our patients and families really in the next, you know, within the next one to two years, I think we're going to start to see these really positive messages and stories come out. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking that was like, an, I'm so glad that family had a meaningful, like literal meaningful endpoint. Yeah. And you're doing such an amazing job, all of you over there. And I know how hard you're working and you're right. There's absolute tremendous hope and it's very exciting. So good job and keep it up. And thanks, Justin. You're, you're helping us all like everyone is who's doing this kind of work. So thanks for joining me today. Well, I appreciate you giving me the chance to do it and you know, talk to your audience and talk to you. And I look forward to seeing you at the next rare thing that we do together. <laughs> Likewise. Okay, take care. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, 
please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.